Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. Today I'm interviewing Australian fantasy author Foz Meadows. Hi Foz, thank you for being with me here today. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, uh, hi, I'm Foz Meadows. I am a genderqueer author and blogger who currently lives in Brisbane, Australia, though I spent the last five years in the UK. My latest novel is An Accident of Stars, Out with Angry Robot, which is an epic portal fantasy with the safeties off. Um, I also have a Shakespearean novella that came out in February this year called Coral Bones with Abaddon Press. And I also have written two young adult vampire novels, uh, as well as a wide range of blogging, reviewing and other such things. Awesome. So that is obviously why we're here today to talk to you about portal fantasy, because it's a really interesting genre, which sort of is popping up a bit more recently. And so I just wanted to, to start there. You know, what drew you to writing a portal fantasy as such? Um, well, I think it sort of began with me. I always kind of liked portal stories when I was a teenager. And there is that viscerally literal escapist sort of fantasy, which mm. for me was my day when I was in class as a teenager thinking, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, some, you know, some an interdimensional wormhole opened up right now in this maths class and I could go and have an adventure instead of having to learn about fractions. Yep, and standard. You, <laughs> standard. Yeah. And you'd always have those, those sort of daydreams. Um, and so the original version of Saffron, who's the protagonist in Accident of Stars, uh, began as kind of like a self-insert character in those literal daydreams that I was having rather than paying attention in maths. I couldn't have written this kind of story at that time, but she was a character that stuck around with me for a number of years. And when I sort of started considering doing a portal fantasy, she was the, the logical choice to sort of reinvent and figure out how to make her fit in it. Yeah, so so portal fantasy is kind of like the ultimate escapism. I see that because yeah, I used to dream about it. You know, who what kid didn't read Narnia and you know not see the whole uh, Christian allegory and instead just see, oh my goodness, if I go to the back of the wardrobe, will there be another world there? You know, <laughs> that's the bit I well, took I mean, away I was, from it. <laughs> I was a big fan of um, and still am of Jackie French, uh, who maybe re- listeners in the UK or the states might not have heard of, but is a very big Australian. Uh, middle grade and young adult author and she had a writing book um, which I was a very big fan of like a book on how to write for for younger people uh, called the day I think it's called the day the aliens from Alpha Centauri invaded my maths class and turned me into a writer and how you can be one too (laughs) which was the perfect title for me because that was literally what I wanted to happen a good 90% of the time so yeah it was always just that sort of yeah feeling of escapism and I the advantage to a purely secondary world fantasy, just an epic fantasy or something like that, is that you can imagine belonging wholly to another context. But that portal fantasy always has that sort of liminal aspect to it where you're stepping from one world to another and it becomes a bit more visceral, I think, or has the potential to, because you are taking yourself and your context and your baggage from where you are to another place. And as soon as you do that, I think there's a choice, which is either to acknowledge that baggage and acknowledge actually how difficult that kind of, of transition can be across all manner of, of issues or to just kind of whimsically wish it away and think, no, no, this would be easy and let's focus on the adventure. And when I was a teenager cooking this sort of stuff up in my head, that second approach is what I did. I'd sort of think, no, 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 it won't be difficult because I wasn't really concerned with consequences. It was just purely a fantasy for me to indulge in instead of paying attention. But when I came to write the book, I realised that actually know if I was going to make it interesting and really engage you know with the ideas my younger self had had and with what I wanted to do now was saying no let's 
let's just poke a little bit further at that um, complication surrounding it and the difficulties and let's just unpick them and see if we can't make something more meaningful out of it. Yeah, and also that's a little bit more sort of true to readers as well because even when you're going to an entirely secondary world fantasy, readers are still bringing their own baggage and their own context to that. So in looking at a portal fantasy, it, they can kind of, you know, in that way with um, someone like Saffron, who's trying to deal with this new world with her own baggage, you know, the reader can really get on board with that because they're also trying to do exactly the same thing as they, they explore the world. Yeah, it's, I think, something that I find really fascinating about secondary worlds or invented worlds of any kind is the potential that you have to just sort of unpick various uh, staples of culture and various staples of socialization and ritual and behavior and try and figure out new ways to work them into the story. And even when you're doing just like a tiny little background detail, there's something really satisfying in that because the more you think about how things don't translate or which things do and why, it becomes this real sort of self-examination in a way of your own biases and your own assumptions and your own defaults. And I know a lot of people don't necessarily find that interesting, but I'm always fascinated by it. And I mean, part of the thing, this is always, there's been lots of fantasy uh, centric blog posts written about this, about, okay, where do you draw the line at anachronistic language in a fantasy setting? Because there are some words and some phrases which we know the derivation of, often because they're newer terms, and we know which era of history they belong to. So if you use the term speakeasy, for instance, or just take that particular word, that is a term that anyone who knows it is aware has a very specific historical context in talking about sort of bootleg, um, you know, bars in Prohibition in America. And so seeing that word transplanted to a fantasy setting, you know, with orcs and dragons and what else, whatever else, and magic, that would ping as, an, as clearly anachronistic for a lot of people. We'd think, oh, that word doesn't belong there, and it, it trips something. Mm-hmm. But as many people have really pointed out, when you dig down into the etymology of pretty much any word, there's a historical context where you go, oh, okay, well, how can you have this French term in a, in a country that doesn't have French? Answer, because we're writing in English, we've adopted that term, and we have to have a translation but there are, it's really fascinating to me, all that nitty-gritty, because some of those things stand out more than others. And it becomes that thing of when you're looking at the language of a world and thinking, okay, if they don't have this historical event that we do, how do we get that term? How do I get an approximate term? What language might they have instead? What language might they be missing that we evolved for these reasons? And then you start to build a culture out of that. And to me, that's just fascinating. Do you think also... Um because you've lived in different countries, you know, you see a bit more of that, you know, what doesn't translate just in, you know, the English speaking Western world, because, you know, I've, I'm an Australian, I lived in Texas for a few years, and now I live in the UK. And certainly, I see that, you know, every day, when I accidentally say the word thong, and everyone looks at me strangely, and I'm like, no, I'm not talking about (laughs) underwear. I swear. (laughs) No, there is that particularly amusing thing. And I think actually as an Australian, there is something um, particularly delightful about throwing off Brits and Americans with various uh, Aussie phrases, just because I think geographically Australia is so far away that a lot of people 
haven't visited it and it doesn't really occur to them to think, oh, it'll be that different. Um, but yeah, there is that, <laughs> that thing with language. And bearing in mind that my experience in living overseas and with talking to people from other countries is still predominantly, you know, talking to other white people because I happen to live and exist in spaces that for whatever reason uh, were still, you know, people who were pro- who for whom English was a first language, even if it was spoken differently, mm. uh, and from vaguely similar cultural backgrounds in that sense. Um, but I remember when I was living in part of Scotland in St Andrews, there was a really great <laughs> moment where it was a whole international group of us. We had a few, well, international in the sense of sort of Europe and America. We had um, a few Americans and we had a few Canadians and a few, a couple of, I think one or two people from New Zealand, my husband and I, who are from Australia, um, a few people from sort of Germany and Europe. And we were trying, and Ireland and various other places, and some from England, and we were trying to figure out where to go for dinner. And it was taking this inordinately long amount of time to figure out which restaurant we should go to because nobody was taking anybody else's recommendation. Everybody was really confused by everybody's recommendations. And the problem that emerged we were having after something like 20 minutes of debate was that there was a phrase in Eng- which in American English meant something was very good, which in Australian English meant something was very bad <laughs> and we it was this it was just a matter of something that none of us had ever had to think about before but just a matter of emphasis where when the americans were saying oh this place is quite good to them that means it's excellent whereas when we say that it generally means oh it could be better mm. <laughs> and the brits just thought it meant oh the place is okay and so everyone kept on saying oh let's go to this place it's quite good and the rest of the Americans would say that and we'd be going, well, why, why do you want to go there then if it's only quite good? <laughs> we just kept on going round and round in a circle. And it was just this one linguistic example, but even among native speakers of the same language from different places. And we eventually had to work out, no, 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 we actually all like the same place. It's just that <laughs> this is thought the other one was mysteriously dissing it for some reason. Yeah, no, it's a great example of just the, the slight differences and people just don't realise... Um how those things just don't translate you you expect okay we all speak the same language but there are subtleties which are difficult to comprehend if you're not from that context yeah and just a lot of a lot of slang words I mean you get all of the obvious ones in Australia that don't necessarily you know because you grow up with either a lot of stuff from the BBC or a lot of stuff from American television so I think as Australians overseas in those contexts you usually got much more of a baseline familiarity with the defaults for the UK and the defaults for America than Americans and Brits have of Australian culture, just because far less stuff that's made in Australia makes its way overseas. So we tend to learn at least some basic nuances just because we grew up with Sesame Street. We know that when they say sidewalk, they mean pavement. And when they say ketchup, they mean tomato sauce. And we know a few Britishisms because they're still around. But then we'll say something particularly ochre and we just get looked at like <laughs> like we've grown an extra head. So. Yep. I think that my just people around me here uh, still just chuckle the most at the word whippersnipper. <laughs> <laughs> or weed whacker. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a real thing. Yeah, but, you know. You do. <laughs> I think it's because Australians are very literal. 
Yeah. And we, we do like taking the piss. Like, you do get this perverse urge sometimes just to ham it up and just and broaden your accent. And just, <laughs> yes. Just be a little, a little more <laughs> difficult. <laughs> just for your own amusement than you might otherwise be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's um, let's bring it back to some portal <laughs> fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, so obviously you said something um, that uh, an accident of stars is like portal fantasy with the the safety off. I presume you mean sort of like with some of the tropes as well of, of portal fantasy, and you've kind of flipped them on yeah. their head. So I was going to just ask you about some of the um, the tropes of portal fantasy that maybe you you were trying to subvert, or you know which ones you really love, which ones you you kind of want to see played with a bit more. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the main one that I wanted to subvert with it, well, there's sort of two main ones, and one was the idea of the neat wrap up, and I want pardon, I wanted that to be clear from the outset that. There wasn't going to be a magical wardrobe that de-aged them when they came back to the real world and time wasn't magically going to have frozen and it wasn't as though there was going to be some spell cast over Saffron's family so that they wouldn't notice that she was gone. I wanted her to have an awareness and for the audience to have an awareness that the entire time she was gone she would be missed and have that as a complicating emotional and mental factor in the stories because it always... Even when I was younger, you know, I've said this in other interviews before, but when I was, even when I was little watching something like um, The Wizard of Oz, it used to really bother me that, or, or Alice in Wonderland, it used to really bother me that there was no real acknowledgement of that tension, which always to me seemed like the most interesting tension in portal fantasies. Yeah, so there's that tension of which world do I choose that happens the minute you step into another world in a portal fantasy. And to me, that's always been kind of the most interesting thing about them is that once you, as soon as you know there is another world, your entire view of everything natively has to shift. You have to be aware that you're in a different place. You have to be aware that some of your fundamental understandings about how you thought science or magic or whatever default you're from, you have to be aware that these assumptions are not correct or that something has changed. And if you're going to continue being in one world, or going back to another, you have to understand, you have to be aware like there ha- you, that there is a choice being made here that is going to define the rest of your life. And it always really bothered me to see that sort of pushed aside and minimised, like, oh, we're having an adventure now, but we're not really going to have the character consider what the implications are. Or, oh, okay, we've come back, and now this choice seems to have just magically vanished when it was the most interesting thing. Like, you get all of these stories where and I'm going to talk about Narnia here because I was kind of really disappointing but at the end of the line the witch in the wardrobe when they come back through and they're children again they never knew that that's what was going to happen to them as a consequence of stepping across and the idea that they've suddenly lost all of these adult memories and become children again and they're fine with it is really kind of bizarre because if you think about your adult self if you if you were somebody who was made a king or a queen and you were invested in this country to the point where you'd forgotten really that you ever came from anywhere else which is what they're described as being like and you had all of this power and knowledge of you know being a fully grown-up person and then suddenly you're tumbled back into the body of a nine-year-old like that would be really traumatic that would mess you up because you would still have those those memories and you would be way too old 
for your body and the way people were treating you. I mean, their speech has changed even, and no one's really, you know, when they come back, they suddenly start talking like English kids again when their dialect at the end of the book as adults is radically different from where it was before. Um, and it just seems like that that sort of shift, I wanted to play with the consequences of that. Yeah, and it also bothered me that they didn't tend to really think, you know, as you said, they weren't worried about back home or they didn't they didn't seem to be thinking about would anyone miss us are we you know yeah well, just I mean, any of that that real world consequence because it under, i understand the way that and i think narnia the very specific context in which narnia is set and written unintentionally kind of sets a precedent for this because it was written during you know it was written set during world the world war um when you know families from the city are being evacuated to the countryside specifically children who were already separated from their parents it was a time of great upheaval and great dislocation for everybody and we know that the Pevensey children have been sent to live with an eccentric kind of i don't think he's a relative but an eccentric person certainly so they have an idea that okay we're already away from home we've already at a distance from our parents and our family and everything we've known yeah we're already kind. They were already kind of on that sort of dislocating adventure, being at the Diggory House, so that the idea that they could go into Narnia and just kind of get distracted by it and grow up there, is not that contextually incongruous. Like it's still not addressed, but at the time in which Lewis was writing and for those characters, even looking back, you can understand that this is kind of an exception to the rule. It'd be a bit like now if you were setting the same kind of story with children who were being dislocated by one of the many civil wars going on around the world and having a portal open up for them. The idea that they, because they're not coming from a stable context, the idea that they'd be missing that stability, that there would be something to go back to, like that there would be a rush, it wasn't already weird. Yeah. You know, in a very different sense. And I think some of that has been carried over to subsequent portal fantasies, the the ease that that has for the the, the implications, rather, that that has for the ease with which they accept the adventure. Um, without people really examining it and saying, well, no, actually, that was a very specific context for Narnia, but ever and after, amen, we're just going to have easy stories. When the original sort of precedent for that with fairy tales, you know, people like people being abducted and, you know, the story of Urashima and, you know, people getting taken off to the land of fairy and vanishing for hundreds of years and when they come back, they think only a moment has passed for them, but all of their family's dead because it's been 200 years. Those were difficult stories. That's that's where it's come from. But we've lost a little of that over the years, I think. And I wanted to try and reinvestigate some of it in the modern context. No, I, I like that because I think that is far more interesting to, to look at. You can't, even in an escapist story, you can't really escape the real world and, and the consequences that are there. No. Well, it's that sort of that slightly trite but nonetheless very true statement of wherever you go you take yourself with you and that I think is the thing that's, that's really interesting to me. What I've seen in sort of um, portal fantasies and even just a lot of secondary world fantasy where you have where you go into this world and it's quite say backwards but it certainly feels more you know 100 200 years in our past in terms of the real world which is why I sort of found it interesting that you had, when you created your secondary world, that there were things like Gwen feeling more at home in this other world as being more safe than 
1980s England or um, you know the the different social structures and, and relationships setups and, and things like that which felt you know you don't have electricity and you know, all this kind of thing but at the same time some of the social aspects that you, you were describing in the secondary world felt far more modern and I found that really interesting. Yeah, well, I think there's the other main thing that I wanted to subvert with this is that there is that traditionally very white, very Eurocentric, very imperialist notion of what a portal fantasy is, where you get, again, this is again the Pevensies, classically, going to some sort of more literally, in their case, animalistic or backwards place and becoming the civilising rulers and civilising influence from outside. It is a sort of colonialist motif and not a very subtle one. And I wanted to really do away with that because the thing that's, apart from it being, you know, incredibly racist in its underpinnings, it's also very boring, I think, because we've got at this point in time, because we have so many fantasy narratives where the comparative, and it's only just narratives, period, where the ordinary, and it's usually a guy but sometimes a girl but the ordinary person suddenly turns out to be really innately special and they go on the the quest or they get swept up into events and somehow it magically turns out that they were vitally important important to this thing that they've never heard of and they have a secret destiny and which isn't to say i like i hate all of those stories all that, that trope um and you get some like there are some of those stories that fall into that category that i really love but it wasn't what i wanted to write for myself because i find it there's a type of convenience to it that is, I think I'm at a point in my creative and personal life where I am far more interested in the idea of characters earning and developing uh, their own destinies, where it's not something that they were born with. It's not something innate to them that, was somehow going to come to them whether they worked for it or not. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of character finding meaning and becoming meaningful in their actions because they took a chance and they worked for it and they tried to see how they could fit into this new world, how they could be helpful without having to centre themselves in the politics of it. And that was always frustrating to me when, you know, Alice comes back from Wonderland or Dorothy comes back from Oz because those were the two classic characters that went somewhere by accident. But the ease with which they returned, you know, wanting to spend the whole time figuring out how to get home, it kind of not delegitimizes everything they've been through in the actual story, but it makes it less important than the fact that they chose to come back and be who, who they were before. And that was always really disappointing to me because I thought, no, the, the point, you've just been on this amazing journey. You've been on this quest and you've materially, just by figuring out this world, just by wandering through it, you have changed things there and you haven't stuck around to be the ruler and you've just made friends and you've gone on this amazing adventure. And now you just think you can step back into the life that was that was frustrating you so much before, like this entire other world. It seems a disservice to that secondary world to suggest that its only importance was in making the protagonist realise that they were happier before they just, you know, to be grateful with what they had before they wandered into it. Mm. That just seems to me a cheapening of that other world. And so I wanted this idea where someone could come from a position of being critical of their 
their own context, Saffron is dissatisfied with her life um, and with what's happening in it. And it's not because she's got an, an immensely terrible life. She's got the kind of life that a lot of us are familiar with. She's got a life that is good in some ways and deeply frustrating in others. And she has a personal context where she doesn't feel like she has any agency and where she's not being listened to or respected. And what she finds in the other world is a chance for autonomy and a chance to discover who she is without those other limitations being placed on her. And that, you know, finding then the conflict of that, of which world do I choose and how do I go home? Do I want to go home? Where do I belong? I didn't know the world was like this and how can I pretend that it's not now that I know? That's what I wanted to sort of dig into. And is that what book two is going to be? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward Um, to it. (laughs) Yeah, without going into into spoilers, book two is very much uh, the concept of aftermath and figuring out how to how to come back and whether you can and whether you want to and what happens, what is the consequence of events and how do you play that all out for everybody. Yeah, so it's I'm really excited to see how people respond to it and I really hope that when I finished editing it and when it comes out. Um, I hope that it's something I've managed to do justice to because it's got a lot of stuff in it that really means a lot to me. You've talked a bit about, you know, one uh, portal fantasies that you were disappointed with. Do you have any, you know, ones that really stood out as as wonderful examples of of the genre? So one that I'm really enjoying at the moment is um, Alex Delamonica's Child of a Hidden Sea series, um, um, which is... From a very, it, it's a new set. So, yeah, Child of a Hidden Sea is the first book. Uh, Daughter of No Nation is the second. I think I'm getting that in the correct order. And that's sort of about a modern uh, girl, Sophie Hanzo, who discovers that she was actually a child of a different world and how to go backwards and forwards. Um, and it's a really sort of lovely story and it's a lovely investigation of family and what that means to discover that you're from a different context and how do you navigate all of that with some really interesting sort of scientific stuff and world exploration um, going into it. And there's also uh, Shauna Maguire's Every Heart a Doorway, which is the start of a new trilogy of novellas, I believe, um, which is coming from a more fairy tale perspective, but also dealing with that lovely concept of aftermath of what happens when all of the children who are taken away through magic doors um literally as children to have have those sort of fairy tale adventures in other lands what happens when they have to come back and what if there was a special home for them to come and gather and and learn out their experiences when they didn't fit with their families anymore and that's that's a really lovely thing that makes a lot of sense i mean Um, surely you'd have some sort of ptsd after something like that yeah and that yeah so yeah shaunan's done a really lovely job um with that and i very much recommend that and there's also um, Catherine Valente's Girl Who Circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, which is the, again the start of a series. And I haven't. It's actually the case with me where I love the first book in that series so much that I've been almost scared, even though I trust Valente implicitly as a writer to deliver something amazing. I've been kind of scared to read the sequels because the first book meant so much to me. <laughs> but that is. Like, it's a fairy tale, but in that classic portal fantasy sense where all fairy tales are kind of portal fantasies as we now define them, where you're going from the mundane world to the magical. And, yeah, that book just is really wonderful in every conceivable way. (laughs) Go and read it. (laughs) Okay. 
so when we're thinking about actually going and trying to write our own story, um, so portal fantasy, like a well, like fantasy and science fiction, you know, in, in general, but it's it's a really good way of juxtaposing our real world social issues with imaginary ones, and then making c- comments on them. But how how do you try and you know avoid that whole being preachy or too heavy handed with um, what you're trying to get across? Well, it's always going to be a your mileage may vary issue, and there are people who've read the book who think I'm being desperately on the nose and preachy about it, and other people who think I'm being very subtle. And I'm always really interested in the where and how of people draw those distinctions because. There's this phenomenon that I have observed, and I, I really struggle to put it into words, but I, to me it kind of is a, is a linchpin of the way that we react critically to a lot of uh, what we would call diverse characters or diverse, you know, sort of non-mainstream um, in the sense of not being straight white male-dominated um, stories and settings. It feels like there was this period in the sort of mid to late 90s where feminism and various kinds of uh, social justice, what we term now social justice movements, were making real headway. And then we sort of got to the start of the noughties. And I'm I'm not going to be so oversimplifying as to say, and then September 11 happened and everything kind of changed. But there was a marked cultural shift around that point, which I suspect those events had something to do with in terms of a knock-on cultural phenomenon. And the, the way it always felt like to me was as though we'd been kind of on the cusp of, in a lot of, in a lot of our storytelling and in a lot of the things we were making, you know, across all forms of media, I say we in the sort of uh, Western cultural sense, we'd been making a lot of stuff that was more diverse, we'd been active, you know, actively trying to broaden our storytelling horizons and suddenly all of that it wasn't like it was undone in a moment but there was a sense I think that people had decided that it only needed to be done once to make the point and there and after you didn't need to keep doing it anymore like Sorry, this is really hard to articulate. No, I mean, I, I, I actually get it because when I, I look at things that I watched as a kid in the 90s um, and then I look at like the uh, – so here's an embarrassing one, but Boy Meets World, okay? So yeah. I loved that series as a kid and, to be honest, I still love it. Um, and then I look at the storylines that were in that and then you look at the, um, the sort of the reboot show Girl Meets World and mm. – the fact that it's it's almost it's afraid to deal with the real issues that the the original series dealt with. So the original series had things about um, domestic violence. It showed um, one of the kids getting a bit lost and caught up in a cult. Uh, it had underage drinking and then the pressures around that. It had these kinds of issues that then they they don't talk about here. Or then you. you um, I was also looking back at some of the the other shows I used to watch as a kid, and I just realised that there were more. Um, black actors more asian actors more just yeah there really used to be um a whole like we were sort of on the groundswell of something i feel of of going a tipping point and then i can't even begin to to pin down what caused this idea though i think a lot of like the hipster ironic stuff of south park and later shows like like family guy really actually played into this a lot i the more i think about them in this context the angrier it makes me but there was this kind of idea that 
oh, okay, so we've had, we've, we've already done the work and, you know, we've made these stories that are centred around um, people of colour and we've made these stories that acknowledge that feminism is a thing that exists and we've done it all at least once, or, you know, to the standards of the time, and therefore we can stop. We don't have to keep paying attention to these issues because we just kind of assume that from the effort we've made thus far, they have been absorbed into the general culture sufficiently enough we no longer need to keep advocating for it. And so then what you had in the noughties was this long kind of slide where it became, you ha were having more and more of, you know, that hipster ironic um, trashing of all of the gains that you'd had until then. And it, became, it got to this point where it went on for so long that then suddenly sort of in the, you know, in, in the, the tens, but past the post about 2010, you had, or, you know, even a little earlier than that, but you had people starting to look around going, hang on, wait a minute, didn't, why, where is all of this stuff gone? It's, you know, people had noticed it before then, but I, I feel like the noughties, when we look back on them, were really a decade characterized by an increasing fear, politically and culturally in a lot of ways. And it had a very toxic effect on a lot of the stuff we've taken for granted before then. But to get back to the actual question, <laughs> is that going to this sort of side note is that I think it's still that period still has a really has had a really profound impact on how people now relate to the include like the deliberate inclusion of diverse characters or diverse narratives or those kind of themes. And one of the reasons that I think people view it as being, you know, on the nose to have a character like so in the first chapter in an accident of stars you know, when Saffron's getting sexually harassed at school, that is a thing that literally happened to me in my, in, like it's based in part on my own high school experiences, that scene. And there are people who just because you have written it down and put it in a story and you haven't, and you've acknowledged it, will say, oh, but that's too obvious. You're being too, it's, that's a, they won't go so far as to call it a straw man, but that's kind of what they're thinking. And it's this idea of, of wanting to say, oh, yes, everybody knows that people can be sexist, but we don't need to tell stories about it because if you tell stories about the fact that, that sexism exists and then they don't really know how to finish that sentence, but they've just kind of internalised it as, as, as a thing to not do, that you're somehow being obvious or tokenistic by acknowledging the fucking obvious. And it ties into this discomfort, I think, with the with the consequences of telling those stories. And I think what we developed through that period culturally was this idea that, oh, it, it's okay to have, you know, these other sorts of characters, you know, have diverse characters or queer characters or people of colour or disabled characters. We can all have them in the margins. They can all be sidekicks. They can be secondary characters. But if you put them in the centre, then that kind of implies that you're trashing, you know, straight white dudes or some permutation thereof. You're trashing the traditional protagonists. And you're, you're casting them maybe even as the bad guys. And we're not really comfortable with you doing that. And that's what we haven't kind of reconciled yet. Um, and some people get that and some people don't. So, yeah, you get some people who look at it, look at what I've written and go, wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's really on the nose how you've not got any straight white male characters <laughs> in that book. And that's not really what they think they're saying, but it kind of is. Um, and other people going, oh, wow, that's my exact experience and I've never seen it represented before or it's similar to my experience or, oh, I've just, I'm just uncertain because I, I haven't seen this 
this kind of thing and I don't really know what to compare it to. So I don't think I've done it perfectly because apart from the fact that I'm not a perfect writer, that would be an incredibly arrogant claim to me. <laughs> uh, I'm aware that I'm being, being overt some of the time because I think it's something worth telling a story about. But I'm interested when people respond to that overtness by thinking, oh, you're pushing a political agenda. It's what, what as though there's no political agenda otherwise, as though if I'd tried to, to talk about any other type of character, that wouldn't have been political somehow. It's just that you notice the politics when you're not used to seeing that particular type of politic. Yes. Uh, and so like something in people. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what sort of we're all about here um, at Breaking the Glass Slipper, because we, you know, we really want more of these stories that have women, have different gender dynamics and, and just focusing on other things. Because, yeah, there is definitely this kind of thing where people seem to look at even just women writers or having a main female character and it's somehow, you know, an affront to men or like somehow rejecting everything. It's like, hey, women are in the world and we experience stories. We have our own stories to tell and we want to read things where we're represented and there's nothing wrong with that. And we just want to get more of them out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing, the thing that's most telling to me about the the hang-ups culturally a lot of us still have around this kind of discussion. It's it's a problem that I think of as sexism without sexists. So when you get a story that's set in a secondary world and the person writing it, this is a very common instance, the person writing it has chosen to write, you know, their, their faux medieval Europe, as it usually is, mm-hmm. um, as a sexist society. And then they'll say oh, but of course, you know, the real Europe was like that. That's just, you know, I'm just being true to the history that I'm basing this on. Uh, and so, of course, you're going to have more male characters and the female characters are going to have their agency restricted. it's like, okay, even if that were true and historically women actually had much more to do in these contexts than you seem to understand because the actual history of Europe is not something you can learn just by watching a couple of Robin Hood movies. Even if that were true, you can write about a patriarchal culture and a sexist culture from the perspective of the women in that culture. But somehow that's not seen as a viable narrative option. And the reason it's not, the reason that you can, that these people are often comfortable with a story that's set in a sexist environment told about men and clever. And often the thing is those male characters in that environment are not sexist themselves. It's this weird sort of chivalric exception where they're happy to write a sexist society but not to portray the sexists as the heroes. Mm-hmm. They always they have to be sort of good men in that context. And then the discomfort with flipping the dynamic and saying, okay, let's talk about a sexist society from the people that it doesn't benefit, i.e. from women, is that in doing that, you are automatically suggesting that the majority of the men in that setting are not necessarily the enemy, but they're not, they're not the heroes. They're something, they are part of a machinery that the protagonists are working against. And that's what people get uncomfortable with. Even if you were to have male characters who were who were good good men in that story, if the majority of the in the focus was on women trying to work around other men, people would consider that really obnoxious somehow. And it's like, okay, well, hist- you could if you could offer the same historic justifications right back at them, you can say, oh well, historically, women did work against, <laughs> you know, women did find ways to to use soft power and to to get what they wanted in these patriarchal societies. And they did do a lot of stuff that the men weren't aware of. And sometimes they managed to break through 
all of the barriers and hold really prominent roles in their own right. This is the if you're talking about women resisting sexist systems or just even if they don't necessarily question them, finding their own power in, in how to use them. That absolutely happened. But somehow that's a version of the story that is considered more political than the alternative, even if they're both set in an identical place. Um, and it, it's very much that sort of the women men don't see problem. Of it's, it's okay to talk about a sexist setting if you're talking about a few good men who inhabit it and they don't really you know, change the sexism, but they're not really part of it because they're good guys. That's okay. But talking about the women in that system and how they might not enjoy it or how they, you know, get along despite it, that's a political act. And that's the hypocrisy of it that you have to kind of, you have to be aware that people have that compartmentalization when mm -hmm. they're looking at it, just sort of take it into account. Like, yeah, there are some people who just aren't going to realise that that's a double standard. And you just screw those people and you write the story you want to write anyway. Yes. Hear, hear. <laughs> we like to have um, our guests sort of do a little pitch for our listeners. So if if our listeners haven't read your books, uh, particularly, I guess, Accident of Stars, since we're talking portal fantasy, um, mm -hmm. how would you sell it to them? Okay. So An Accident of Stars is a feminist portal fantasy that involves matriarchy, polyamory, magic, politics, uh, and lots of queer, queer ladies having adventures. Uh, so if any of those things appeal to you, um, then come on down. <laughs> okay, and when's uh, book two scheduled for? Book uh, two is called A Tyranny of Queens. I'm currently editing it, and it is at the moment slated for release in March 2017. So Ooh. you don't have to wait long. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Foz. Thank you for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper will return in two weeks' time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the podcast by following us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and everywhere else you could possibly imagine. <laughs>